So we're gonna open up a new chapter today, Mark chapter 15, if you have a Bible, um, would like to join me in that. And we are nearing the end of our study of Mark, which we started last year, January. And for me, uh, so, so here's the plan. We're gonna read half of the chapter, chapter 15 today, but then we're gonna interact with chapter 15 this Friday night at our Good Friday uh, prayer and worship service. Has anybody ever gone to that or plan on going? Maybe not. Spring break, no, you know, no judgment. Um, but yeah, this Friday at 7, we're going to interact with um, the, the whole of chapter 15 some more. And then the following Sunday, we'll have uh, kind of our last time in Mark, Easter Sunday. And so I was just thinking about it. It's just been a really profound time for me studying this, this, this time through Mark with you all. Um, and so I was just wondering if we could do a group chat, and I just was, this I know it's always kind of risky to do because maybe I'm wrong, and I'm the only one that has been tracking with Mark, but I wanted to just open it up and ask you, does anybody have a theme or a story from Mark that has kind of been speaking to you um, that the Lord's using in your life throughout this season? Shout it out if you do. Cruciformity, Dean, has been a great theme throughout this. I agree with you. Yeah. Anything else? Great reversals. Who said that? Thank you for saying that. That is, uh, oh, Dave, that is a, uh, a huge theme. Uh, throughout Mark, all the reversals. I mean, even when, if I could, if I may, the uh, leper right at the beginning, where he's outside of the camp, and Jesus goes out and heals him and sends him back in, and Jesus stays outside. Right, it, such a cool theme throughout Mark. Well, even this week, as we go, uh, as as we're interacting with um, this story even more in a heightened way. Maybe you could spend some time reading through the Gospel of Mark or, or even reading through chapter 15 um, in your own private time this week and be thinking about how to fill your heart up with that stuff as we go. I know that it's always just good to, to know, you know, Sundays come and go. Some of us have been sitting through sermons and studies for our whole lives, and the point isn't so that we can just hoard all of that and forget it all. Like, it's good to really process through that and think, how is this forming us and shaping us as we grow together? I mean... We all are just going to be a part, of, um, a part of this thing for so long. I'd love to continue to encourage you to take steps forwards as we learn stuff. Or else at some point, we're going to have to just say, we cut it off. You know, we've learned too much. No, I'm just kidding, but it's tempting, you know. We've learned too much, and, so we, and we're not growing. Um, but seriously, uh, continue to grow, and I want to encourage you in that. Today we have a reading from chapter 15, and I'd be happy to invite you into that now. Um, please stand with me if you're able to for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 15 and verse 1. And very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, everybody, 
They made their plans, so they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. This is part of their plan. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked? The words are yours, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, so Pilate asked him again, aren't you gonna answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom during the Passover festival that they would release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed a murder during the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one who you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, and set that on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes and led him out to be crucified. Amen. One of the big themes for me studying through um, Mark has been focusing on, you're probably tired of hearing me say this by now, but focusing on perception, you know, verbs and uh, instances where people are seeing or not seeing, hearing or not hearing. It's kind of been a resounding thread that I've been looking at personally as to like, who are the people who are seeing and what are they seeing and and what are they understanding and, and how does that work? Um, you can even see that in this chapter as you start to look even down, there's even distorted versions of, of uh, perception when he's, Jesus is on the cross. It says these people came by. They saw him, right? But then they started saying things like, show us a sign, you know, prove to us that you're the Messiah. Or they hear him cry out, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they say, what's he talking about Elijah for, right? Like, they're not even hearing what he's saying. Uh, you see this, and, and it kind of goes hand in hand with, um, as you're looking at that, I've noticed the people who do see and the people who don't are also always people who are inside, don't see, and people who are outside do. And you see this with the lepers or with the... Um, 
the unclean people or whatever, like other cultures, or even at the end of this chapter, a Roman soldier is saying things like, I see, this is surely the Son of God, right? And like the people who are disciples are looking at, like they are not understanding what's going on at times. They can't even, they're, even when they're told things specifically, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And you have like uh, all the religious people who are, are still not understanding what's going on. And I think that if we just sort of uh, interact with Mark the way that he wants us to, these are going to be some things that we're picking up on as we go. But you have to ask the question, what is it that Mark wants us to see? Okay, if I, if I were, do, do the work, I figure, am I one that has perception? Am I able to hear and see? What is it? Six times in this chapter, we've, we kind of see like a very specific thing spoken and said over Jesus. He is called the king of the Jews. It's spoken by people who are uh, Jewish, people who are uh, Roman. It's nailed on a sign put above it. I mean, it's like a neon blinking sign in this chapter that this is uh, who we are calling this person, this is a theme of Mark. To try, Mark wants to get us to um, who is the king. This would be a great thing for us to discern, each of us individually, and to start to ask ourselves, do I see Jesus as a king anymore? Do I see him as the Lord? This is one of the earliest Christian creeds that, that, that you would say, Jesus is Lord. When we hear him speak or when we see him do things, are we viewing that from the terms of this is my uh, savior, my, my king, the person teaching me how to live, teaching me how to talk, who I'm modeling my life after? Or at what point did we shift and place other things or other people on the throne having a louder voice and a louder influence on our lives? So I have come to start to think about this uh, story in this section as more of a coronation, more of a revelation or an exaltation of the king here. And there's three stories that I'd like to explore that, that I read to you today. One would be the interaction with Pilate, the crowd, and the soldiers. So... The first interaction uh, where Jesus is called the king is through the mouth of Pilate. This is the first time in the whole of Mark where this term is used, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate, um, Pontius Pilate, is the governor, the Roman governor of this whole area. He's a well-documented person in history. We have coins minted uh, from Pilate. We have inscriptions in archaeology that have been found saying Pontius Pilate was here, you know, in graffiti. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, but we do have inscriptions. We have um, uh, historians who have written about this person. There are certain Christian traditions that say that Pontius Pilate and his wife became Christians after this interaction. Of course, I'd like to think that that's true. I'm not sure. But the one thing, unfortunately, that Pontius Pilate is known for most is this scene, this interaction where he becomes the person who gives the go-ahead for the soldiers to crucify Jesus. What I'm struck by by this interaction is Jesus' response, the things that he says and the things he doesn't say to Pilate. 
it mirrors really the, the mock trial that he's been in with uh, the, the Sanhedrin before this in Caiaphas's house. They took him during the, the prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. They brought him to Caiaphas' house. They have questions that they're asked, and he does the same thing. There are things he responds to and things that he doesn't. And I'm really struck by this. So I'll start with the things he doesn't respond to. In both scenes, they're accusing Jesus of many things. And Pilate himself is like, are you going to respond to this or not? And Jesus remains silent. Now, I know the verses as well as you do, like a sheep before the shears, he's led to a slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Like, it's really beautiful in a way, but who does this? I don't know if I'm struck by that because I've just been, I've just been feeling uh, really defensive lately in the last four or five months of my life. And I guess if you probably asked my siblings, they'd probably say I've been defensive the last 30 years of my life. But like, we live in a culture where defensiveness is like second nature. It's, it's a virtue almost. We're, we're, we're raised to do this, to, to fight back, to respond. I mean, how many... Articles do I see in the news that say such and such hits back or responds to this allegation, and it's just part of what, what we do. We stick up for ourselves. We spin it. Perception is reality. You've got to you know, uh, make sure that we get out in front of this and respond, be somebody who says things, and we can get so defensive then we see Jesus here in this situation, the one who could have an answer for all of these things, the one who could reply to all of these things, to shut this down, and he doesn't say anything. And as I just sat with this silence, it just more and more reminded me that the person that they are railing against is the one person who loves them the most in the universe. And if you look at it from this perspective, it is kind of challenging. For me, when I start to get defensive and get argumentative and enter into a conflict with the metrics of the world, what always ends up happening, maybe not for you, but for me, is I end up reducing the person or group that I'm arguing with to something less lovable. Someone or something, I'll reduce them to somebody that's more of a threat to me, an enemy to me, somebody that I have to defeat in this interaction, somebody that I'm not necessarily called to love, that I'm not necessarily called to, to sacrifice for, somebody who is a threat and it feels good to take out the threats. But Jesus doesn't say anything. He looks at them and he loves them and he doesn't respond. I wonder what kind of an upset in our culture that we could start to, uh, what kind of shift we could make if we just did this some of the time even. If we started to become a people who were like, you know what, I'm not going to engage in this conflict in this way and reduce you down to somebody that I just have to defeat right now. I'm gonna actually find a way to listen to you, to love you, to look, to make eye contact with you, to somehow see you as a complicated, image-bearing person that you are. The only way that we're able probably gonna, to do that is to be solid in our identities. And that is the other thing that strikes me about this interaction is that both in Caiaphas' house and in Pilate's courtyard, the thing that Jesus responds to is he affirms his identity. He is asked, is this true? Are you the king? Are you the Messiah? And he's like, yes, that's me. 
part of the reason why we can get so spun around in, in uh, conflict and fighting with one another is maybe because of a displaced or misplaced identity. I think if we took a razor to the things that we make our identity and cut them off and dialed it back all the way to the thing, to the identity that we're given in scripture, I think that we'd be a lot better off when we're interacting with, with uh, the accuser or the accusers. If you're a follower of Jesus, the word has been spoken over you. You are a child of God. You are a beloved child of God. That's something that you can say to yourself every minute of every day. This is who I am. If you were to write a short biography about yourself, that is a line that you could even start with. I am a beloved child of God. This is my identity. You can find a creative way to, to tell yourself this. You can word it in a way that made sense to you and your culture right now or wherever you're at, but that doesn't change it. the fact that it's true. This is the truth. And you get to live into that and become a disciple who continues to learn what that looks like for your life. You can be a, a table, a person who sits at the table of God, a, a guest, if you will. You can take on all the things that the New Testament talks about us as a servant in the household or, or whatnot. But you are a child of God. And I believe that it is possible for us to receive that identity over and above all the things that are crying out for us uh, in this world to attach ourselves to. And I also believe if you build on that foundation, your house is gonna be much more sturdy when accusations come. Because in this household, where we are a big group of unlikely siblings, we are told things like, it's okay. As a matter of fact, you are gonna be blessed. I'm gonna bless you when people insult you and hurl all kinds of false things against you. That's been happening to people in our family for uh, many years. It's okay. You are gonna be the light of the world somehow. In the midst of all of this, you are gonna be the salt of the earth. As a matter of fact, we're not gonna reduce people down to less lovable people. We're gonna actually try and elevate them into more lovable people because in this family, we pray for those who persecute us. We don't have any enemies anymore. We love our enemies and we're gonna show them the consistency that we believe between us and our Father in heaven who makes it rain and shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. We're not gonna be like the world that just greets the people who are our friends. We're gonna be like this this wild, enigmatic family of love that finds a place for people in our hearts where the rest of the world says they don't belong. Is your identity in the right place? The only way that we're gonna be able to get there is if we let go of all the other things and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is my king. He's the one who gets to tell me who I am. And based on what he says, I'm gonna march forward after him. Is Jesus the king of your identity? The next interaction is there's a character here called the crowd. This crowd has been all throughout the Gospel of Mark in various levels of good or bad. It should give us a healthy insecurity about crowds, but I'll save that for a different time. What happens is um, there's an interaction where uh, a a prisoner could be released during the Passover feast. Now, this is actually a good move for Pilate, I think. 
they're celebrating, right, the big event where their whole people group were, were set free from uh, bondage to Egypt, right? And here, they're in bondage, in, in a sense, to Rome. And so give them just a little bit. <laughs> Let go of one person who is in jail, and then that can kind of scratch the itch and feel like, you know, there's some momentum consistent with this holiday. Otherwise, you know, it's going to get intense, which is what they're seeing, right? This crowd is getting um, relentless, and he wants to make sure and not have a riot. And so, um, and so, so he's trying to deal with this in somewhat of a diplomatic way. Now, I was always kind of raised thinking that they couldn't, well, at least I've heard this over the years, that they, they had to bring this uh, Jesus to Pilate because they couldn't. Um, execute Jesus themselves. Now, it is true that the Jewish people couldn't crucify someone, but somebody put John the Baptist, you know, somebody killed him, right? That was only four or five chapters ago. And, and, and they have a way of getting things done. But as it says in, in verse one, the Sanhedrin, they had their plans that were made, and so they went to Pilate. I think that they're trying to do something strategic here by bringing Jesus to Pilate. Jesus is a crowd favorite, and they want to have somebody who is in trouble uh, for taking Jesus out. They've been planning on this for, they've been planning on execution for a long time. But who's gonna be the one to do it, and how are we gonna pin that on somebody that's gonna lead to something that brings more momentum to our, our effort and our cause, right? So they bring Jesus to Pilate. Now, he, he's thinking, I'm gonna expose a little bit of what they're doing by bringing up this release of a prisoner bit. So who is this person named Barabbas? Well, let's start off with the name. You might be interested to know that this is the only Aramaic word in the Gospel of Mark that's not translated. Almost, I mean, not almost, every other time. It's a direct translation, right? We saw that in chapter 14, remember? He said, Abba, Aramaic for father. And then father, right after, it's translated. Even in this chapter alone, they took him to Golgotha. That's what this means. Or he prayed out in Aramaic. That's what this means. Talitha kum, that's what this means. But then here, it's not translated. This is like, so Bible Interpretation 101, if you can see a direct pattern that is broken on, at one spot, you get to, to ask yourself, what's the intentionality? What is the reason that Mark did this? What does he want us to wrestle with and to see here? Well, as some of you might know, this Aramaic word has the prefix bar, which means son of, and Abba, which means father. And I am struck by just... The, the non-interpretation that makes us interpret at moment here where we can see people, again, who are so blind. They're so unable to see what they really want, but they're, they're speaking out, give to us the son of the father. They're chanting this. They're crying out, release to us the son of the father. And they're unable to see that it's Jesus that they really need, that it's Jesus that they want. Furthermore, when you look into who Barabbas is, things get really convicting to me. You see, I grew up in the church, and so the way Barabbas was always portrayed to me as this like very, like, uh, like a scary murderer. And um, I know, I watched The Passion in the theater, right? Like, that's how into this stuff I am. And, and I remember 
as a young man, seeing this scene, this guy looked like Jason Momoa meets like Attila the Hunter or something, like super scary. And then you've got like, I'm pretty sure the flannel graph was the same guy they used in the like demon possession stories, like when it came to the Barabbas story. And that's something beautiful. Uh, like if that, it, there's something there. I mean, Jesus taking the place of the lowest of the low or Jesus taking the place of somebody who we're all like, all, we're all out, we, we would all condemn this person. However, I've, as you kind of look at the language here, it seems like that is just not who Barabbas is. Mark says that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was someone who led or was a part of leading a rebellion against Rome, and in that rebellion, somebody was assassinated or somebody was killed in some sense. Now, this is not the Jack the Ripper type of person that I always thought he was where they're just releasing him out into the wild. Actually, this is somebody that the crowd wants, And this is where it gets kind of challenging to me. This is a hero. This is a patriot. This is somebody who has actually led a revolt against their oppressor. This is somebody who has wisdom. Maybe he's got something that he's been thinking while he's in jail, like, I would have done it differently if I ever had a chance again. And he's got some insights that he can help uh, guide a new movement against Rome. Release to us Barabbas. Standing there beside Jesus, the contrast couldn't be any more clear of the way that the world does things versus the way of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if this was only five days after Palm Sunday, you know what the palm branch means. 200 years prior to this, the Maccabean revolt was, uh, when it was celebrated, they would celebrate with palm branches, We want a new Maccabean revolt. We want somebody to rise up and take over. If Barabbas came down the Mount of Olives, he wouldn't be riding a baby donkey and crying, saying, if only you guys would know the thing that would actually bring peace. Barabbas would have come riding a war horse down singing, we will rock you, and like whipping everybody up into a frenzy. Release to us Barabbas because, and this is convicting to me because deep down I think it's just easy for a lot of us to, to, to listen to the ways of the world and to deeply desire a hero and somebody to rescue us and, and place that uh, onto somebody's shoulders and say, I know that uh, you will bring me comfort and security and safety. Even sometimes in our country, it's just easy to say, well, the next politician or the next person who is elected, that's going to be the one that fixes it and then the one that will rescue us or the one that will lead us into a better place or even in in smaller ways like our friends and our marriages. If, if, If only I could get a different spouse or a different job or if only I could get this thing, it's going to save me and set me free and bring a fruitful season into my life. But the thing is, there's only one name in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that will save us, and it is Jesus, the true Son of the Father, is who we need to be laying a hold of. And when we do, and crown him king, 
That's when we are going to start to see the fruit of the kingdom of God in our lives. When we follow the true king of kings, we will start to see the prince of peace leading in our community and in our families. We'll start to see the true everlasting counselor, the true Lord of Lords. Is he your king? Or as you look up with eyes to see today, do you see someone else, maybe Barabbas, seated on the throne of your life? And maybe today's a day where we say, I'm gonna remove that thing or that person or that hope, whatever it might be, and I'm gonna let Jesus be where he always belonged. Jesus as our king is never gonna ask us to do what Barabbas would ask us to do. And his metric for how he sees redemption in this world is not gonna be done at the expense of your enemy. It's gonna be at his own expense because that is who he is. The following story points to this. The soldiers led Jesus away and what they started to do is they initiated a huge theme in Mark, a theme of coronation. As you probably remember, the very first line of Mark was a direct line linking to some subversion of the Roman Empire, or at least a contrast. Now, it's hard for us sometimes to pick up on that right away because we're removed from it, but listen, the foreground of the Gospels and the New Testament is the Roman Empire. And so the more we can kind of get into tune with their daily life, the easier some of this stuff gets to, um, to, to pick up on. But in the daily life of a Roman citizen, you will hear the line that is read at the beginning of Mark all the time. Whenever an emperor has a son or has a victory that they, uh, that they achieved or were crowned emperor, this is the line that would uh, indicate the news is about to be shared. This is the Galleon. This is the good news, the gospel of, fill in the blank, the divine son. So this is the gospel of Tiberius, Caesar, the divine son. And they will then start to go through uh, the news, let alone if this was a whole uh, series of, of crowning a new king. But Mark challenges us right away with that line, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then woven throughout the whole story is a story of where this guy is saying, guess what, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom, my king, the kingdom is starting to advance. The kingdom is within you. There's a message here of a new kingdom and a new king. And this story is where the king starts to be revealed and where he is crowned. So the first thing they do is they place the royal clothes upon him. This, was, this is also a part of the process for a Roman Caesar to be made king. They placed the crown on his head. More than three times a day, maybe, I, these people would be saying things like, Hail Caesar. But here, they're saying, Hail King of the Jews, and kneeling before Jesus, pledging in a mockery way fidelity to the new king. And the only element left in the Roman triumph that you should be looking for then is what happens next. The king or the Caesar or the emperor will then, will then go and sit on their throne. 
our king rules and reigns from a throne. But it is the cross. This is what stands at the center of the universe, and this is where Jesus does his leadership. This is where he does his challenging, his empowering. This is where he says to come and follow me and be like me in this. Sometimes I wonder, I don't know if this has ever bothered you before, but when you read kind of that creative imagery of Revelations, when, when there's talk of a throne, at one point he sees a lamb who was slain standing on a throne. Is there, why is someone standing up on a chair in this story? It's always kind of bothered me. But if you think of it in terms of the cross of Jesus Christ is his throne, as he is creatively depicted, he will always be looking like he is standing. This is who our king is. This is who we are called to follow. And this is why all throughout the New Testament, you start to see followers of Jesus say, we have one message. And it isn't Christ the dominator or Christ the throne sitter or Christ the, that's not the stuff that, that we wear around our necks or the things. Our symbol is Christ crucified. This is who we are identified with and this is what governs our life. Because when we interact with the crucified Christ, this is where life, resurrection power is, is found. If you feel like it's been a while since you felt like the life of God at work in your life, get this, I have seen this happen. When somebody makes a decision to, to sacrifice uh, or be humble, the empowering resurrection power of Christ enters into that person's life. But in America, we often think that I can get resurrection power and have no cross. We need to bring the throne of our king back and put it in the center of our lives. I just saw it this week. Two people were for sure this, this relationship's gonna blow up. For sure. If the metrics of how conflict is done in this world would have been present here, this is done. There's no chance. But then they came in and basically just with tears said, I love you. I want to figure this out. Please help me. I want to see you. I want to be humble. And there was a death and resurrection in that room. And that relationship was 100% repaired. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. This is how resurrection power works. And this is why our king went to the cross for us to be able to set us free from all of the, the Barabbases and all of the things uh, that rule us in our lives and take us down into a place of chaos. Jesus wants to bring us into a place of life if we would follow him in that. So is Jesus your king? Look up to the cross this week, Passion Week, Look up to the cross on Good Friday and see your king and see what he does and let him set us free to follow him in that. Let's just take a moment and pray through this stuff. We say yes and amen, Jesus. It's always like a tearing and a, a complicated thing to disentangle ourselves from the patterns of this world, but we want to be transformed with the renewal of our minds. So set us straight. Teach us. What is it like to follow you? If there's anybody here who's just been experiencing um, a lack of identity, speak to them. 
or experiencing just uh, nonstop defensiveness to try and compensate for whatever, just speak to us all today and say, we, don't, we can just let it go and be a people of love. Because you've shown us what love looks like. You made it very clear, and we are obsessed with you. You are our champion, our greatest example, and our empowering presence. If there's anybody on the throne in our hearts, whether it's, could be a hundred different things, I just want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and let us replace whatever person, thing, or idea that is with the true king. If for whatever reason we have relegated your cross, Jesus, to the corner of our theology somewhere, today and this week, we place it back in the center. Teach us about what it really means to be your image bearers. If there's anybody here who just feels like it's just too hard, it's not going to work out, I just pray that your resurrection power would meet them today. Fall afresh on them and show us what it's what it's really like to be a subject in your kingdom. Amen.